Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of Stop the Killing. This week, we're rejoining a conversation that we had with Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott, who are forensic psychologists that currently work in law enforcement, but are also the hosts of the wildly popular LA Not So Confidential podcast. If you haven't checked it out, don't forget to click on the links in the show notes and go and have a listen. Also, if you want to see the video versions of the podcast, please head over to at Sarah Ferris Media on YouTube and uh, hit the subscribe button, which, by the way, even if you don't watch YouTube, we would really appreciate you subscribing to the channel because, you know, there are a lot of people out there who don't actually listen to podcasts and we would love to be able to get our message in front of everyone. So it just helps the algorithm spread Stop the Killing even wider. And don't forget the links are in the show notes. You don't have to try and work out how to spell Sarah Ferris, which, by the way, has been spelled many, many terrible ways over my lifetime. So with that, on the last episode, we took a bit of a segue into Dr. Shiloh's and Dr. Scott's training working with the sex offender prison population. And that is where we pick up from right now. I did not know this conversation was going to take uh, this quite deep dive into to sex offenders, but it's absolutely fascinating. But I do want to switch gears a little bit because I know that you've kind of worked on both sides of the coin, haven't you? You've worked with the offenders. And then am I right in saying that you now both work with law enforcement supporting them? Yeah. So Shiloh and I both work in tandem with law enforcement, but we work in very different very different capacities with like a, a tiny bit of overlap. Shiloh is a law enforcement psychologist. So one of her duties is to provide support and psychological services to officers and sometimes their family members. And I, I did that briefly for a different law enforcement agency several years ago. But my current position is I partner with a police detective and we follow up after critical events in the community. So if one of the college campuses here has an individual who did an email blast to the entire student body and all the professors that he knows that his English lit professor is a reptilian and is planning a mass event and he has to be killed, 
in order. Like we all need to go to this professor so-and-so's house Mm -hmm. and surround it because he's going to, he's going to kill all of us. You know, so already you see that there's a confluence of mental health, law enforcement, legal services, prevention of, you know, mitigating risk, evaluating risk. And the primary goal of my program is to mitigate risk by connecting to services at the appropriate level of care, but also mitigating risk. Like immediately, if someone has been put on a psychiatric hold, we have laws in the U.S. where depending on the amount of time that you're held, you lose all of your rights to having weapons. You can no longer legally purchase Mm -hmm. a gun. So many times it's about retrieving weapons from the house interviewing family members, creating a relationship with the families, with the individual, you know, who many times has no insight into their illness or their behaviors or no willingness to do anything different. So I I love my job. It's incredibly fascinating. The agency that I work for has one of the most famous, most well-known mental health intervention training for police officers. And we have people come from all over the world to train with us. And I am lucky enough to have the opportunity where I provide an introductory lecture every other week to 30 to 40 officers and fire professionals as they go through a four day, 40 hour intensive um, immersion into mental health issues that results in a final day of using professional actors in situation simulations. There's a jumper There's um, a person experiencing a psychotic episode, a person experiencing a bipolar manic episode and putting all of the officers through the ringers, you know, kind of letting them use their skills that they've been developing over a week. So, yeah, my my program does a little bit of everything, but mine is about it's it's the referral lands in my lap like this person has done this. They're either in jail awaiting a mental health court adjudication or they're back at home. Or they're still on their psychiatric hold. And I basically, we get all our information, pack up, and we're out in the field for the entire day, just from going from site to site, doing evaluations. And then I collaborate with, you know, this clinic, this residential program, trying to say, okay, this person has not been successful at this regular outpatient level of care. And they also have a forensic issue. And this person might have some sex offenses in their past. So we need a forensic outpatient site at this level of care and it needs to be residential. So it's about putting a bunch of pieces together to, you know, prevent further risk in the community. Is that normal in police forces around the US or even around the world to have a psychologist paired with a detective like that? Because that seems like a lot of resources. Uh, You'd be surprised at how many places in the US are starting to do it, even with limited resources. But I've also... I've also attended and presented at several conventions around the world for crisis intervention training. CIT is a big organization here in the U.S. I mean, our model, which has been really expanded by the police agency I work for, and they've taken it to a completely different level, but it started based on what was called the Memphis model, which came out of Memphis, Tennessee, because a couple of decades ago, there were an extraordinary number of mentally ill individuals living on the street or living with families that were killed in in police interactions that were supposed to be de-escalating and it went completely awry. And 
you know, I would love to say that it's always based on altruism and thinking of the best for the community and for the client, but it's not. A lot of it comes down to liability because each one of those then becomes a lawsuit. And Memphis, Tennessee realized we need to help our mentally ill individuals. And we also cannot afford lawsuit after lawsuit. It's going to bankrupt us. Mm -hmm. So they did the right thing. They consulted with the leading mental health professionals that knew about this stuff. And they got, I believe, a a couple of social workers and a psychologist, and they developed this mental health intervention training to teach cops about the basics. You know, as Dr. Shiloh and I say over and over again, the vast majority of people with significant mental illness are way more likely to be victims of violent crime than to actually perpetrate violent crime. Right. Yeah. But if those incidents are, the, are generating police calls, your police force has to be trained at the level to understand very quickly what's going on, assess the situation. And sometimes it may be, this is hands off. We can't do anything. This person is barricaded. They say they're suicidal, but they're barricaded. We're not going to take down the door and extract them from their home because that exponentially increases the risk of death to that person. See, so it's very complex, but a wonderful model. And, you know, when we would go to these conventions, we would talk to agencies like small police forces and, you know, sort of America's heartland or sheriff's departments. And they would say, this is great. I've learned so much since I've been here. We don't have any money to do it. And what I would say is like, you, you can get creative though. You can get creative. One guy was talking, I said, where are you from? And he mentioned his town. I said, okay. I know you're a small town, but you have one of the largest universities in your state that is just 20 miles away. I know that that state university has a very robust social work program and they have a doctoral psychology program. You could reach out to them to create a co-responder model that provides their students an internship and you could start this feed and immediately, you know, you could see the light bulbs going on for these law enforcement agencies that are all this convention. You just have to be creative if you don't have the funding, but it's got to be done or people are going to keep getting hurt. I had a really sad example where I had an individual who was very, very ill and a very gentle individual who had come here from another state from a very rural area and had gotten a smartphone from his family and he was on Zillow and became convinced that he owned a house in a very rich neighborhood of Los Angeles. What's Zillow? Just so, uh, Zillow. Oh. oh, it's a real estate app. Okay. Gotcha. It's, so you can go through and look at available houses mm-hmm. and condos and stuff. So this guy is just standing on the lawn and the owner of the house drives up and says, you know, what are you doing here? He realizes the person's ill. He calls for an evaluation. The police come out, they evaluate the guy. They take him off the property. He comes back and they take him back. You know, the, the owner of the house is like, I understand he's ill. I, I don't want to make this a big thing. And then the guy got aggressive at the next one and he threatened the owner. So this person was hospitalized at one of our really great forensic hospitals. And yeah. I said, just give me some time. I, I actually am familiar with the state that he's from. Every psychiatric hospital, and there were four in the state, every head of those departments and those hospitals said, do not send him back. There is nothing here. There are no psych beds available in the state. They're full. 
we're putting people in hallways, we're putting people in residential homes, we're putting people in assisted livings, and that's not working. And I said, well, what's the closest outpatient clinic? And they were like, there is no outpatient clinic for 150 miles from where he lives. So we ended up keeping him here and getting him in a program, but that's how vast our country is. And there's like states with really great programs and there are states that have nothing at all to offer. You mentioned before the ability to stop the guns being left in houses of people that perhaps were at risk of committing violence. Can you walk me through a little bit about how that works and practice? So you have options. One is, so I'm sure if anyone here familiar with American culture has heard the term 5150. 5150 is Welfare and Institutions Code in the state of California for danger to self, danger to others, or uh, grave disability, which means this person we have found is not safe in the community. So we're going to take them for a hold on a, at a psychiatric unit for up to 72 hours. So if that paperwork I fill out in the community is accepted by the psychiatrist of the hospital, immediately that individual goes into the mental health firearms database. And the, the registry of any gun that they have known to be on their person Mm-hmm. is removed usually while they're either they've been arrested or they're on the psych hold and family members will usually help or will ask permission like you know here's the deal it's a felony now for you to be in the presence of a weapon we're going to take them either way but we would like your cooperation and usually at that point individuals will say yeah okay here's the gun safe here's the code And that's a five-year prohibition. If their hold gets extended beyond three days, it's an automatic lifetime ban. But that does not stop them from buying guns illegally. It does not stop them from getting a ghost gun, buying parts on the web, if they're so inclined. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection? because it was digital, or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal, because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses, and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game, or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements, or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. 
Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Well, let's switch to you, Dr. Shalek. Am I right in saying that you are kind of the, the safety net for law enforcement in terms of keeping those who protect us mentally well? Yeah, we that's certainly our mission right now, and we try to. So my the way that I often explain my job is kind of threefold. The meat and potatoes of what we do is clinical work with department employees so that it can be sworn officers or it can be civilians as well. We want everyone to be healthy and mentally well, and, and this can be a stressful job. So we have lots of different ways that officers can come see us or employees can come see us. We have really accessibility to where just like getting a therapist on the outside, they can come to us voluntarily, self-referred, and have unlimited free therapy services. Wow, yeah. Um, We're a team of, when we're fully staffed, 16 psychologists. We're the largest in the nation and have been doing it the longest. Our agency had hired their first police psychologist in 1968. So we've really just kind of evolved from there. So we we are able to offer this wonderful luxury to our department employees of therapy services, as well as sometimes based on the situation they're involved in at work, they might come to us for a debriefing session um, and sometimes a series of sessions depending on what the situation is. So for an officer-involved shooting, Those that do fire their weapons in those incidents would come to us for three sessions spread out over several months. And then anyone else who was witness to it or maybe deployed a taser or a non-lethal type of weapon, they would come in and we would just see them once and then sort of make a determination if they need to come back. Our aim there is really to look at normalizing the experience for them, providing some psychoeducation for them on how it feels to go through a traumatic experience like that in the hopes that they don't, you know, think that they're going crazy because they're just experiencing some of the natural and normal things that one would. And we know there's such a stigma of talking about feeling an emotion or experiencing something that might you might have been led to believe makes you appear weak. We're giving them a safe space to be able to talk about what happened. So that's a wonderfully, wonderfully um, rewarding part of my job is just getting to hold space for some of these first responders who are doing really tough work every day. And then another part of our job is we're consulting psychologists. We're kind of an industrial organizational psychologist to various divisions within the department. So each psychologist is assigned a certain number of divisions and you're like their station psychologist. We don't work out of that station per se, but we try to visit, walk around. I call it my rounds as much as possible. (laughs) Get some face time with them. I think it. the more we're embedded, the more they're going to realize we're just normal people too. They can come talk to us. But also we provide trainings. I'll pop into a patrol briefing before they're about to go out and give them their little mental wellness tip of the day. You know, it might be about sleep. It might be about relationships. It might be about trauma. And I have to tell you a really good story. Catherine's going to be so proud of this because in in my work a few weeks ago in doing this, I popped by one of my divisions, just like a midday briefing that has like maybe six officers. I try to get the most bang for my buck. 
that was a very small briefing, but I also don't want them to be left out and never have me come visit. So I'm so glad I did this day because I did my little spiel and whatever. And then one of the sergeants said, okay, we're going to, we're going to talk about this incident that happened yesterday. And they kind of let me stick around for it. And what had happened, and we watched the footage of it, was that an individual walked into the police station lobby with a bullet. And you see him on the camera, like, talking to the officers about it. He's like, can you guys, like, check my bullet? I think it's faulty. It's like, like, something's wrong with it. And very quickly, they're realizing there's something a little off with this guy. You know, he's probably got, you know, some mental illness happening. And the video has no audio to it. All of a sudden, you see the officers push away from the desks. Because one of the officers asked the guy, do you have a firearm on you? And he said, yeah, I did. Oh, my so they, gosh. All of, a, all of a sudden, they're dealing with this situation where someone probably with a mental illness has now entered the lobby with a gun. And a police station. In a police station. Yeah. And is talking a little, you know, out there. So they end up taking him into custody, safely retrieving the weapon. And then a training officer and his trainee were then responsible for actually taking possession of him, booking him, doing a little bit of investigative work, right? The legwork, if you will. Well, those two officers were in the briefing I was in that day. So they were talking about the experience. So the training officer and his trainee started talking to this guy a little bit more and actually learned, well, if he knows this bullet is faulty, he's been trying to fire a weapon somewhere, right? Uh Because otherwise, how would he know it's faulty? And then they heard some sort of veiled, subtle talk about him wanting to possibly take revenge on someone or an entity. I'm going to keep this kind of vague. Total leakage. So what they did is they ended up applying for one of these wonderful laws that we have here in California of a gun violence restraining order on this guy. Okay. Which automatically takes the gun away for at least six months. Is that right, Scott? Six months is the bare minimum. And then a judge can later decide once this kind of shakes out if it's going to be longer. But they went this extra mile to do this little bit of investigative work as patrol officers they are not even detectives and take the time to call the judge. And so afterwards, I said, you know, I just have to I have to chime in here. There's someone who studies mass casualty incidents and, you know, still keeps up in the research in the world of threat assessment. I have to tell you guys, you. You don't even know what you could have stopped today. Exactly. Because there are so many moments in which a teacher, a cop, a mental health professional, when we look in hindsight, could have intervened and maybe just didn't for whatever reason. I'm like, and you guys took the extra time to do this and you really didn't have to. I mean, this wasn't like a protocol that they had to do. I said, so, you know, we never know. And, you know, I, I hate that we don't know what we stop, but we can't tell the future either. But I said that was that was pretty awesome. I just have to say. And they were like, oh, thanks. Thanks, Doc. But I ended up writing them formal commendations for it that went oh, all the way amazing. to the chief of police because, you know, I just thought we don't recognize those moments. And I would have never heard about it if I didn't just pop in. And these are things that are happening every day. It could be a major task force that is thwarting some plot or it could be something little like this. It's incredible, isn't it? It, Yeah. I mean, how often we talk about those missed signs on the podcast. It just is so frustrating. So it's so inspiring to hear that people are going that extra mile. 
So the last part of what I do in my job is um, part of the crisis negotiation team. So the way it is so fun. It's also the most annoying when your phone rings at three in the morning and (laughs) you have to drive 50 miles across town. Can you not Um, the nine to five crisis negotiation team? Can they not keep it within our office hours only? You know, it's so weird the times that people decide to barricade themselves in homes or. It's a mystery, isn't it? Threatened to jump (laughs) off of a tower or something. But essentially in the, the city in which I'm employed, whenever there is a situation where someone is barricaded with a weapon and a crime has been committed. So we would call that a barricaded suspect and or there's a suicidal subject who is threatening suicide. And usually they're the only person that's in danger in that situation. And it just hasn't been resolved for a handful of hours by patrol officers who have been called out there. Then the the team that responds is actually the SWAT team, because, you know, if this person has a weapon and they're refusing to come out, you need special weapons and tactics to be able to usually resolve that situation. But as a part of the special weapons and tactics team is the crisis negotiation team. So here with my department, it's called a centralized model. So it's not like the movies where the negotiators are totally separate people from the SWAT team members. Here, we actually cross train them. So if you're a SWAT team member, one day you might be on call to respond as the tactical operator at the front, you know, with the weapons. But on a different day, you might be the negotiator that's just dressed in a hoodie and shorts because you're just behind the scenes that day. But it's a wonderful system because everybody understands. And there's been a lot of strife between negotiators and SWAT teams in the past if they're not of the same tradecraft. And it's actually led to some disasters in a lot of situations where they weren't on the same page. But with the two negotiators, a primary and a secondary, a psychologist always rolls out to the scene as well. So we are consulting in real time with the negotiators right there on issues of perhaps mental health crisis that this person is going through. Things to say and how to say to change attitudes and beliefs to be able to bring it to a successful, safe resolution. It's three of us. We're part of the team. So we're standing out there in the middle of the street, in the middle of the night, gathered around a phone talking to this person. Or sometimes I'm in the back of the um, what we call the Bearcat, which is a military style vehicle that can pull right up to the house if the person is not answering the phone we have to get it as close as we can and i've sat in the back of that thing with a helmet and a vest on in 100 degree weather (laughs) sweating from every crack of my body (laughs) just and it's a beast that is a big ass and you're in la where it never it's never cold so even the weather's against true true So sometimes we're talking over a like a bullhorn and I'm right there so I can hear what's going on and I can like write a note or whisper to the negotiator of some suggestions. Even though I would say that's a smaller part of what we do, the psychology behind it has been my absolute passion and interest since I came to do this work six years ago. So yeah, like I said, it's not so fun when you get that phone call and you're in your deepest, best sleep. But when you look at the numbers, you go back, I go, okay, we've responded to 100 incidents this year, and 85% of them were resolved through talking, through negotiations. So yeah, the SWAT team maybe showed up, but they are not breaking down doors, 
you know, in the majority of these incidents, it's just specialized talking that is helping. How often would you be called out over like the space of a month to a crisis? I would say we averaged two call outs a week, a little over 100 incidents a year. You know, I didn't know what to expect when we got on this call. It's really quite empowering to get that understanding of all of those little safety nets and how you guys are cogs in that and and helping keep the community safe. It's amazing. I actually trained as a social worker back in the day, but after a long story, I ended up moving out of that pretty quickly. It involved a handbrake on a motorway and also... Oh, okay. Yeah, two different (laughs) stories. Which is funny, I hadn't even told my kids that till the other day and they went like, what happened to your mum? Anyway. Excuse me, mum? I think between the two of us and with the variety of things we've done in our career to this yeah. point, it goes to show the vast number of things you can do in forensic psychology. Totally. I mean, we get from our podcast, we get emails all the time of people starting their careers in forensic psych. I mean, we very early realized we have to just do an episode about forensic psychology and how to get into it for our listeners because we were fielding so much. But there is just like there's no one clear cut job when people say, what do you do as a forensic psychologist? They are such varied days by the sounds of it in your career. Do you remember maybe what was the hardest day on the job? So I've had so many different experiences. I've had incredibly fulfilling experiences where someone that I never met, that I was chasing like a ghost for three years. This person was under the influence of drugs, you know, and meth is really a scourge. And meth is one of the most intense drugs that literally alters your neurology and your personality, your behaviors. I mean, it really can have a horrific negative effect. And it can mimic many severe mental health conditions. So we get a lot of like what we call methophrenia referrals Mm -hmm. because it looks like schizophrenia, but it's Mm -hmm. actually meth-induced. And I was collaborating with this mom who was just saying, I'm doing everything I can. I don't know where he is. He's doing this and then calling. And what I did was I couldn't get in touch with the client, but I could do everything I could for the family. And I was coaching them on how to speak to their child. I was coaching them on, here's this resource. And if you're really serious about this, this is your homework. Do this, this, and this. And to get a call, you know, three and a half years later of a weeping mom, she's crying and immediately, fuck, client's dead. But it's the opposite. It's that the client has been clean for eight months and is back at work and is reunited with his family. And, you know, like... It's a drop in the bucket, but that's an amazing day. Mm. And then a really sad day is when you followed somebody for a couple of years and they were doing really, really well, and then they relapse or they come afoul of the law again. And this time they've taken it to the level where it's felony and there is no other route except going to prison. But that's sort of the, the high and the low of my job, but it's endlessly fascinating. And while it's sort of the same routine, the details are very different every day, which keeps it fascinating and interesting for me and keeps me on my toes. Clinically, I'm at a level of sort of putting things together that I would never have achieved if I wasn't doing this kind of work. The hardest days for Scott are when I've been on call and then I go to a call out at night and we talk someone off of a a overpass and I call Scott in the morning. I'm like, guess what? This is going to land on your desk today. 
<laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm now giving this case yeah. to you. <laughs> That's how our jobs can overlap sometimes. That's um, nice. I also think it's great that, Scott, you're doing a job that still keeps you on your toes, considering you started on your toes with your dancing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's hard to think of, you know, what a hardest day is, because I think for, you know, the hardest days in the job that I do, probably personally, just physically, or when, you know, there are crisis situations and I'm just, you know, I've been in back-to-back calls all night. But I would say one of the toughest days was, and to dovetail this nicely into your show, would have been the Monday after the Route 91 shooting in Las Vegas at Mandalay Bay, because we had over 50 of our employees were at that concert. Really? So Monday morning, we had cops and their wives literally knocking on our door to come get into to talk to someone. And it was just so different from any way in which I have done a debrief or treated law enforcement professionals because most of the trauma they see is within the confines of their job, right? Like, I know I'm going to go to work every day. Yeah. And generally I'm safe and generally it's good. But yeah, the shit could hit the fan and I'm trained Mm. for it and I'm ready for it and I'm armed. And But when you take a husband and a wife who have their kids at a country concert to let their hair down, to get away for the weekend in a space in which you feel safe and then shit hits the fan and you don't have your gun with you, you have your children with you, you don't know where the fire power is coming from. The vulnerability, the scale to which these officers just felt more vulnerable than ever before in their life when they're not used to feeling that was really hard for them. Really, really hard for them. It was a, it's like, to me, I was like, this is like a whole nother category of trauma. Mm. Um, And I had people that because they had taken their families and gotten them out of there and tried to run with them as far as they could away from there, were feeling guilty about not going back and helping. And they had to do what they had to do. But then you had like the absolute rock stars that were going back in and triaging and pulling people out and going back in several times. So it was a lot, probably the whole week, but that first day, you know, it was a lot of sitting in people's trauma with them. And although hard, there's absolutely a silver lining. I mean, where else are they going to have that space held for them? So it's it's an absolute honor to do that type of work. But that, I think, sticks out to me as just a really, really tough day. I think the proudest moments in my current job, there are two things. There's, there's the podcast that we have that has had some moments that are really like, uh, bring me to tears almost and, and such one. And I'll talk about that in a second, but in, in the context of my job, this is going to sound so weird, but you know, we get clients that are so profoundly mentally ill that they really are not able to have any kind of quality of life on the streets or in their homes. And part of my job is to assess whether or not those individuals would have a higher quality of life if they were conserved, if they were taken over by the public guardian system. And, you know, 
mental illness does not necessarily mean that you can't take care of yourself, not in all situations. And mental illness doesn't mean that you're not able to make decisions about your care. But when someone is so alienated from themselves and that process, we have a system here in California that steps in and it's really hard to get people conserved as it should be because the, the system used to be abused by people locking up children, locking up wives. And the, the moments that are such a relief for me is when I know that I have at the right time, I have helped an individual get into a place where they are going to feel a lot safer and integrate a sense of safety about their life that they were too scared to come into because they're used to living on the street in a way that like they could die of an infection, like within a couple of days, or they could get killed or they could get traffic. And those moments were about, there's about three or four of them where I've been able to successfully get people conserved and then follow their progress of recovery over a period of years with help and treatment and medication. That is just like, that makes all of it worth it. And then when it comes to our podcast, you know, we've been on so long now that there's about five people that changed careers because of listening to us and are now graduating. And that is mind blowing to me. And they're so happy that they're pursuing something that they've been passionate about. And that makes me very happy too, that we've got like little, you know, our, our psychology our baby babies are out there. <laughs> we burst five babies together. That's incredible. <laughs> That is incredible. Well, you never know. This is going to be on Stop the Killing. You might birth another one by proxy. There we go. We'll take I love them. it. We'll take yeah. it. Our eggs are still fresh. Go ahead. <laughs> but sure. hurry up because <laughs> we're not getting younger. Well, proudest thing in your career so far, Dr. Shiloh? Mine's pretty recent, actually. So I, I am the consultant to that unit that does have the SWAT team under their umbrella, you know, with my interest in crisis negotiations, it was a good fit. So twice a year, we put on a training together that is for the psychologists and for the the SWAT team. And we kind of have carte blanche to do whatever we think will be helpful. It could be really fun stuff. Like if the SWAT team puts it on, they're like, come on, we're going to have you guys come shooting with us. <laughs> or if we put it on, it's like, you know, psychologist PowerPoint. Here's, you know, <laughs> I try to make it interesting, of course. Yeah, yeah, but that's yeah. what it's been in past years. So I had this wild idea and I thought, oh, I don't know if my supervisor and the SWAT commander will go for this, but I might as well ask. So what I wanted to do is put together a training that was based off this really high profile barricade hostage situation a few years ago. And I had had, through some other means, the opportunity to meet one of the hostages who was in there. And she and I are part of a like a victim advocacy consultation team together. So we met through that. And I wanted to do a panel, just basically a speaker panel for this training that included her and the two negotiators who worked that call that day who have since retired. And then I would just kind of be the moderator. And we'd never really done anything like that before. And she's just a wonderful person, has done a lot of work on herself and her trauma. But 
is a tell it like it is brutally honest kind of tough chick but also wonderfully respectful of law enforcement and what they did that day to save a lot of lives although it it was ultimately a tragic incident in a lot of ways so the guys at the top say okay go for it let's do it and then i have my survivor that's there and right before one of the the sergeants pulls me aside and he's like doc i don't know i don't know this goes sideways might have to shut it down they were so worried about having this outsider coming in and they were so afraid that they were going to be criticized by her and you know she's more liberal and hippy dippy and they were just like oh we don't know how this is gonna go they were all very very tense about it and i said i got this if you trust me trust that i would pick a wonderful person to be here today went off wonderfully we learned so much from the panel i had swat guys in tears afterwards giving her hugs saying how they never get to hear what happens with people whose lives are changed through these incidents. You know, they just pack up their equipment and they go, like they go on to the next one, right? Yeah. And for them to hear how life-changing it was for her and how incredibly grateful she was to them and what they do and what they train for every day, it was was like an out-of-body experience of like, what is going on here? And one of them like, Shiloh, I can't believe you made me cry today. (laughs) It's so powerful. It it was so powerful. I just can't emphasize how important it is for mental health, for law enforcement, and then where we overlap is just that sweet spot. And what gives us hope with, you know, as crazy as things kind of feel all the time. You've given me a lot of hope today, I must say. What an absolute joy to speak to you both. I could talk to you forever and ever and ever. The good news is that I'm not going to keep you on the call forever because I can go and binge your podcast. So do you want to tell the listeners, where can they find it? How many episodes have they got in store for them? Oh, my gosh. Uh, So we've been at this over six years now. Coming up next week, you have 150 episodes to listen to. Wow. And next week will be on the topic of domestic terrorism. So might be right up the alley of your listener base. So Scott and I, when we started off up at, for the first five years, essentially, we just put out an episode twice a month. Clearly, you can hear we're just a little bit busy, you know, normally. <laughs> so so we put out two a month. We pick a forensic psychology topic. We will give you all of the research behind it. Really, really do a deep dive into it. And then we will pick a couple of cases that have that element to it. So it's not as if we start with a, a true crime case, per se. We give you a topic and then we figure out something that's a real life example of that, usually a couple of them. And then, of course, because, you know, we like to just talk like two best friends and with Scott's background, we love to give an entertainment example, whether it be a movie or a film of this psychological disorder or phenomenon, because there can be some really, really good depictions out there that people are like, oh, yeah, that's what that was. Yeah. Or there's some horrible, really horrible depictions yeah. that just perpetuate, you know, some of the stereotypes that we don't want. So we like to throw that little element in at the end, give some people a little list of things that they could go watch. And then last year, what we started doing, we we started putting out weekly content and people were asking us all the time to talk about true crime documentaries, which that just wasn't what we did. But now we do that once a month. So we will watch a true crime documentary. We talk about it. Usually there's an element in there we can sort of go on like a little psychology tangent and side note. 
And then the other one that we do once a month now, because of our jobs, we can't really talk about Los Angeles, which is funny and weird because I think that's what people expect with LA Not So Confidential. However, we can talk about crimes that were about 100 years ago. So we do a vintage episode every month that is usually they're Los Angeles centric. And we just have so much crazy, horrible crimes from you know the 20s, the 30s, in that whole era. So Los Angeles is a fascinating place at that time, for sure. Well, I don't know how you fit it all in. How do you fit all of that in, you two? That is absolutely a chock-a-block. We, we, we probably both have the most wonderful husbands that you could possibly yes. have. Like it helps, have doesn't it? Phenomenal families. We have phenomenal partners who are patient. You know, this is our hobby and our passion. We also have a YouTube channel where we have done our live stream episodes and interviewed just an, an unbelievable number of fascinating people. That actually might be an easier thing to dip into before committing to 150 episodes of our podcast. <laughs> and Sarah and Catherine were interviewed not that long ago. So go check it exactly. out. We were. That's how we <laughs> met you initially. It was fabulous. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, team. And if you're listening to this podcast, go and check out LA Not So Confidential. Yes. Thanks, team. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. 
You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men, and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy, and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.